Hi, I'm your host, Kimberly Thomas-Tigg, and you're listening to Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. Whether you're a patient, advocate, caregiver, or a clinician, Signalize is your source for good news, personal stories, events, and the things that Rare and Associated Communities care about. Follow Signalize and Dazzle for Rare at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, R-A-R-E, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll post episode links, updates, and more. On this Signalize, a Dazzle for a podcast, we're helping you get ready for Rare Disease Day 2023 with events, news, and our guest, Lauren McDermott. So let's get on with it. In Rare Disease news, we have Rare Disease Day 2023. So listeners of this podcast will likely know that the 28th of this month, February, is Rare Disease Day 2023. If you're listening to this episode on the release date of 15th of February, then you have time ahead to head over to rarediseaseday.org to learn more about this Global Awareness Day. According to their website, ways you can contribute to this Global Action and Awareness Day are by sharing your colors via social media, events, illuminating buildings, monuments, and homes, by sharing experiences online and with your friends, by calling policymakers and shining a light on people living with a rare disease. Collectively, we aim to change and improve lives of 300 million people worldwide. Now, every year, folks take part in their own way, but one of the suggestions that I would like to highlight is contacting your local representative. Um, So if you are in the US, UK, Canada, or India, there will be links in the show notes to your local representative. So hopefully that's helpful. I think it's a great idea to reach out, write an email, make a phone call to your local representative or a member of parliament, and just let them know on Rare Disease Day how important it is to have the appropriate funding for programs and taking care of folks with rare diseases. Next, we have the Adira Conference coming up this spring. The Adira Conference will be happening in Cardiff, Wales, as well as virtually after the in-person date. This info comes from Dr. Sandra Butterworth, who you may know from episode 13. Yeah, I'm Sandra Butterworth, and um, I actually live in North Wales. Sandra says, we are delighted to be joined by Associate Professor Dr. Andrew Mitchell from the University of Chester. Andrew will be the co-chair of the Adira Conference. We now have all of our speakers in place and our main sponsor. We will be sharing the details of our conference throughout February. Tickets will become available on the 28th of February, 2023 on Global Rare Disease Day. The best way to stay up to date on the Adira Conference, the keynote speaker announcement, and more is to follow Dr. Sandra Butterworth on LinkedIn or go to rarequal.co.uk. Also happening on Rare Disease Day 2023, we have a big announcement coming from friend of the Dazzle and fellow advocate, Carrie Wong. Carrie comes to us from the sarcoidosis community with ties to many other communities through her lived experience and advocacy. To hear the big news that she has to share with all of our rare communities, head over to her Twitter or Facebook page on the 28th of February. For this and all the following Awareness Days and events, the relevant links will be in the show notes for this episode. As promised in our last episode, we have a long list of awareness days and events happening February 2023 from the 15th onward. There's no need to grab a pen. You can find all these dates on the Dazzle for Rare awareness calendar. It is jam-packed with over 200 awareness days throughout the year for our URCIID or undiagnosed, rare, chronically ill, and invisibly ill and humans with disabilities community. There are some non-rare days as well that are handy to have to tie in with your URCIID social media post during the year. 
Because these are all in the calendar and we have so much to talk about, I'm gonna keep the details brief. You can find websites, short descriptions, and more on the calendar, and all relevant links will be in the show notes for this episode. Wednesday, February 15th, we have International Angelman Syndrome Day. On the 20th through the 26th of February, we have FD slash MAS Global Awareness Week. On the 22nd of February, we have World Encephalitis Day. While encephalitis is not a rare condition, there are several types of rare autoimmune encephalitis, which is why I include this day. On the 24th, we have International SCN2A Awareness Day. On February 28th, of course, we have International Rare Diseases Day. We have a non-rare date on the calendar for this month. Uh, All month is LGBTQIA plus History Month in the UK. It's a non-rare month, but because we overlap and intersect as human beings in so many ways, I thought this would be a good one to share with you today. Next, we have rare community news and events. Living with Cavernoma drop-in support by Cavernoma UK takes place on Monday, February 20th from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. UK time. If you are affected by Cavernoma and would like to join the support call, visit their Facebook page, which we'll put in the show notes. Of course, the main event for this month is Rare Disease Day, and the good folks at Medics for Rare and ORC Glasgow will be having a webinar for the occasion. The folks at Medics for Rare posted a tweet that has a document sharing all the relevant details, so we'll link directly to that rather than try to jam all that in here. So that'll also be in the show notes. We have a final piece of news from North America that ties in with our next segment and our guest, Lauren McDermott. As many of you will have already heard, beloved French-Canadian singer Celine Dion recently announced her rare disease diagnosis. Uh, She announced this in December of 2022. Celine rose to fame through the 80s with songs like The Power of Love and later with the theme to James Cameron's Titanic, My Heart Will Go On. While her career has seen some incredible highs, Celine has also experienced many low points. She shared that her health has been affected for many years now before her rare disease diagnosis. Celine shared with her millions of fans that she has been diagnosed with an ultra-rare condition called stiff person syndrome. SPS has impacted her ability to do her daily activities as well as her ability to sing. In her somber and tearful video, she shared her struggle with this diagnosis as well as her optimism for the future. Leading into that, fellow lone wolf and advocate Lauren McDermott joins us to talk about her atypical SPS diagnosis and a bit about SPS. So I'll let Lauren take over from here. Hi, I'm Lauren McDermott, and I consider myself to be a lone wolf (laughs) patient advocate for rare disease. And I have what they call atypical SPS, which is stiff person syndrome. Recently, Celine Dion was diagnosed with SPS and they did not announce the type of SPS she has. So I'm not aware of that, but there are several types. Um, I'll just quickly kind of say what they are. I don't need to give further explanation. More information can be found on NIH, uh, National Institutes of Health and NORD. And so the types of SPS are classical, focal, meaning one limb, jerking, perm, 
I can't say what that actually is because it's very hard to pronounce. And the perioneoplastic related version, uh, which is associated with lung and or breast cancer usually. So I would probably fall under the classical type, but in the way that I present. However, I'm considered atypical, which not many people discuss um, because it's the rarer of the rare. So about 60 to 70% of people with stiff person syndrome, SPS, however you want to refer to it as, have the GAD65 antibody, which is what attacks the GABA in the brain, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter that plays a really big role in controlling nerve cell hyperactivity. And it's associated with stress, anxiety, and fear. It affects mood, sleep, and your muscles. So that's kind of the science behind it right now where it stands. It does seem to be changing. They're not exactly sure what causes SPS. So there's that other percentage of people, you know, in that like 30 to 40% that don't have a GAD antibody, and I happen to be one of them. Um, And I also, another test for stiff person syndrome is EMGs, electromyography, and that is testing the agonist and antagonist muscles. And I also was negative on those. And I actually had two of them done. And there's a lot of kind of chatter about whether EMGs are really effective and if they're done correctly. So who knows if I even had either of the two that I had done correctly. But when I got to the specialist that I'm seeing now, there really was no reason to test me further because with all the presentation and all the other tests that I've had done that came back negative and there being no other possibility of anything else, I basically was diagnosed with stiff person syndrome. I was first misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia and it didn't register with me because my symptoms were very severe. So I pushed a little bit harder um, to get, you know, the diagnosis. And some other conditions that SPS can be confused with are MS, Parkinson's, primary lateral sclerosis, and hereditary spastic paraphoresis, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, fibromyalgia like I was, and also a lot of times mental illness, because um, this disease affects mostly women. And as most autoimmune diseases do, but SPS is a very high prevalence in women. It used to be called stiff man syndrome. They changed it to stiff person syndrome because that makes more sense because it affects women. So um, oftentimes women are dismissed as being sort of hysterical or just having some sort of mental health issue instead of actually really taking a deep look at what's going on with the body. Um, So that's been a struggle for many people. But um, what also makes it challenging is there's other diseases that carry the GAD antibody. And again, I know I don't have it, but like cerebral ataxia, type 1 diabetes, temporal lobe epilepsy, and there's a couple others that have some pretty complicated names that I won't bother trying to pronounce. So that's kind of another thing that's a bit intriguing. So you kind of have to rule those things out as well, which obviously all that was ruled out for me. What makes this so hard is when you're presenting with something severe and all the tests are coming back negative and the rest of your physical health is pretty good, a couple um, 
autoimmune things from my past that I mentioned, some concussions, but nothing was really registering that really meant anything to them. So we further tested for some other antibodies as well that sometimes can be associated with SPS, such as gephrin, glycine, amphiphysin, and something called DPPX. Again, a very complicated name I won't bother trying to say. Um, and I was negative for all of those as well. What I find intriguing is I've asked to be retested just out of curiosity, and there really doesn't seem to be a point because I've been told that now that I receive IVIG, which is intravenous immunoglobulin, that from the donated blood that you get, that I could have now be presenting antibodies for GAD based on donated blood. So that's pretty much, I think, covering atypical SPS. And I feel like what people need to know is if you think that you identify with this disease, do not think that you need to have certain antibodies and or positive EMGs in order to be diagnosed with this and to keep pushing if you feel like the diagnoses that you're getting don't register with you and or the treatments you're getting for those diagnoses, if they aren't helping you improve, keep pushing further. Presentation-wise, it was just extreme uh, stiffness. I presented also, oddly, more in the upper body to begin with, which again is rare. Usually it starts in the lower limbs for people, especially the legs. So I started in kind of the shoulder, girdle, chest area, if you will, and neck, and then it eventually moved into my entire body. But weirdly, it's usually kind of like my left upper body that's affected, but then my right leg. But any muscle in the body, which there's roughly 600 or so, I believe, can be affected. I've heard of people having eyebrow spasms. I've had a throat spasm, pelvic spasm, you know, all the upper body spasms, a leg spasm. The other day, I had a really weird spasm behind my ear that felt like someone sucker punched me in the head. So there is just a gamut of things that can kind of go on. And then you just wake up with these really weird feelings and sensations. And it, it kind of takes a little while to put together, oh, right, this is SPS now just affecting this part of my body today, whereas yesterday it was affecting a completely different part of my body. So it likes to jump all around. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, uh, I believe it's called hyperlordosis, where you have a really curved lower back. So I had some of that, but it wasn't too bad yet. I do believe it's gotten worse. And my gait was off. Uh, my balance wasn't great. And extreme, just chronic pain, extreme fatigue. The only thing that was helping was heat. So I was basically at that point, um, when I got to good clinicians, I was stuck on a couch all day on a heating pad on my back, just crying most of the day. That was every day. But I did get lucky in the sense, and it's again, another rare situation that um, I had a coworker who happened to sit me down and notice that at the time when I was working, right before things went really downhill, and I couldn't turn my neck in meetings, I was slurring my speech, I was leaving meetings crying, you know, calling out working from home, just trying to manage my workload and still get the job done while trying to figure out what the heck was going on and the symptoms were just getting worse. So we had a really nice candid conversation and I explained all my symptoms and despite doing all my own research for six plus months and also going to a ton of doctors and doing a ton of tests during that time, 
Again, like I said, everything coming back clear, healthy. You know, there's many muscle spasm conditions. So you could go on for days and days and days and days and days if you could dedicate your time to it and still like have more to research. So he stumbled upon stiff person syndrome, which I never had. And he told me about it and I completely registered with it. And luckily I got that information right before I went for an emergency walk-in the day before my scheduled appointment with a clinician that I was waiting to get into. And I said to them, I think I have this. And I got laughed at and they weren't going to test me for the antibody, but they did. And like I said, it came back negative. But in the meantime, I started seeing a bunch of other clinicians, rheumatologists, neurologists, because I started with an internist who really kind of got me into everybody that I needed to see. And very quickly, I mean, this all kind of happened within a week or two. And they basically said, we think you're right. You're like, at that point, you know, no one else was laughing anymore. They were all scratching their heads thinking, what the heck is going on here? I think we do have a zebra in front of us. Because <laughs> in the rare disease community, we identify as a zebra. So, um, so yeah, I was lucky to have that little heads up. Whereas I think if I didn't, who knows, I could still be trying to figure out what I have to this day. The state that I presented in physically and how much pain I was in and how hard it was for me to communicate and just how rounded my shoulders were and, you know, literally coming into the doctor's office with a heating pad and just, you know, struggling very hard. I barely able to get up on the exam table, you know, needing help with everything, barely able to take off my clothes, put them on and all that. They're really, I don't think they thought that if this could be any kind of mental health issue just because of how bad it had gotten. I do think I had um, symptoms starting back in like 2012. I was diagnosed in late in uh, August of 2019, but they were all manageable. So unfortunately, you know, I ignored some stuff that maybe if I had taken a little more seriously ahead of the game, I could have di gotten diagnosed even earlier. But then again, I wouldn't have presented in that crisis mode. So that's when I feel like I probably wouldn't have been taken seriously and thought of maybe it was some sort of mental health issue instead. But by the time I got to them, it was just such dire straits that there was no denying what was going on. So my mental health was kind of put on the back burner. And I think I was still sort of in a state of shock, to be honest. I mean, it hit me the day that I got the phone call and they said, this is, we do think this is what you have before getting the official second opinion. But obviously that was a really tough day. And I remember embracing my mom and us both just crying saying, you know, I don't want to have this. And her saying, I don't want you to have this. And what are we going to do? And what's this going to look like? And basically was, um, filled out disability paperwork immediately. Um, and it was kind of said to me, you know, there's no cure, the treatments are rough and we'll try to get you as comfortable as possible. And it wasn't until a couple of first months past diagnosis that my mental health did start to take a dip and since then has continued to decline. So I was uh, referred to a therapist. I tried to find a specific therapist that was familiar with chronic pain and chronic illness. To be honest, I really didn't connect with her. Then I did speak with a grief counselor because that's, to me, it's I'm grieving my old life. I'm grieving the things that I can no longer do. And with SPS, it is a continuous grieving process, which makes it hard because you, you kind of wrap your head around, all right, now I can't lift my arms anymore to this height. Or, 
you know, today I can't do this. And that's usually pretty typical. But then, you know, as time goes on, you continue to lose mobility, continue to get more confused, more brain fog, more fatigue, the meds aren't working as great. And yeah, it's just dealing with this over and over day after day, it just really starts to to bear down on your brain um, and your mental health. So the most helpful is my support group. I have an SPS support group. We text and we do our own side calls on Zoom and they have become my second family. And they're like my sisters, you know, I don't have any sisters, I just have a brother. (laughs) So, and they totally get it. And to me, that is paramount. We can get out all the bad stuff. We can celebrate the good stuff together. And, you know, we don't have to apologize for certain things and not feel guilty with each other. Thanks to Lauren for joining us. For some more information and context on stiff person syndrome, we had a longer conversation, which I will include in a bonus episode coming up. Thanks for joining us, Lauren, and thanks for listening to this episode of Signalize, a Dazzle for Our podcast. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. To stay up to date on the podcast and Dazzle for Rare, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, Rare, R-A-R-E. And finally, if you liked this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media platforms.